Welcome to the Christian Outlook, the weekly radio program that sorts through the issues in our fast-changing world in a way that honors your Christian faith. Brought to you in partnership with our sponsor, the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. This week, we'll look at some of the latest research on Christianity and Christian values in the culture. Monogamous marriage between a man and a woman is just not a theme in our culture anymore. We'll look at the erosion of parental rights in California. We call it state-sanctioned kidnapping for a reason. It's going to allow a random third-party adult to take your child and check your child into a residential shelter. President Biden hosts a party on the White House lawn for Pride Month. You set an example for the nation and, quite frankly, for the world. A conversation with apologist Larry Taunton about the gender confusion we see gripping so many young people today. The idea is to basically take the wrench of sexual confusion and throw it into the smooth-running American machine and thus destroy it all. I'm Scott Furrow. Great to be with you today. I'm the host of the Pastor Scott Show, heard Monday through Friday in Southern California. I'm coming to you from my home station of KKLA in Los Angeles. You can catch my program each day through our live stream at KKLA.com and also through the TuneIn radio app. Take a moment to follow the Christian Outlook on Twitter at TC Outlook. That's TC Outlook. Thanks for joining us. There's no question that our nation is in a tumultuous period. With a consensus on values that were long shared by the culture at large eroding so quickly, and with the faith commitments that shaped and upheld those values eroding so quickly as well. The Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University has been releasing a series of pieces related to their project, the American Worldview Inventory 2023. Adam Rasmussen of the Research Center talked about the latest release with Bill Bunkley, my colleague on Faith Talk WTBN in Tampa. So the plague of anti-Christian settlement crossed over Europe, crossing the Atlantic, certainly into the New England states, and especially as uh, we're talking up in the uh, New York area. Talk about that as far as a region about the falling away. Yes, good point. Um, We see that regular weekly church attendance was at 39% uh, for the whole nation. It went down to 33%. That's 6% down. 15 million less people are going to church every week in the United States. That's 6% as an average. However, in New York, it's down 49 points Mm-mm-mm. from where it was. 49 and, points. That, that's that's falling off the cliff. Yeah, and then in the north northeast, uh, 63% from where they were before. So these are the biggest declines. And then we also see in Bible reading, opening our Bibles at least once a week, down another 30 points for those in New York and 14 points in those in the uh, Northeast. And, and Bill, I know you love our country, and, and I do too. And when we think about the United States, uh, in his farewell address in 1796, Washington called religion the source of morality, a necessary spring of popular government. And Absolutely. John claimed that this is, he wrote to his cousin, uh, Zeb Deal, before Uh, just days before he signed the Declaration of Independence. And this is what John Adams said. He said that statesmen may plan and speculate for liberty, but it is religion and morality alone which can establish the principles upon which freedom may securely stand. Mm -hmm. And so what Americans don't understand is that as they 
slide into the subjectivism, and as they cast off God's standard, the Bible, they're also losing true freedom. And it's very concerning. So we have the sexual revolution, 60s and 70s. Uh, Then we have uh, Roe versus Wade in there. And then we have uh, no-fault divorce. And then Christians go to movies, and about any relationship you ever see, you see relationships with somebody who's not your wife, or you're not married, or you're living together. And now it's just the norm. How much is all of that desensitize America along with this idea that we can just watch a church service on TV. How much do you believe that has impacted the falling away? Well, if you search the scriptures, you will find that every single time the Apostle Paul talks about morality, sexual morality is one of the first things that he mentions. And that's because uh, we worship one God, and he has made marriage. He's the one that instituted it between one man and one woman for life. Jesus mentioned that again in the New Testament. And therefore, we need to learn, as it says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, to control our bodies, not as the rest who do not know God. So there's a sexual standard in Scripture. Uh, We're told in Hebrews chapter 13 that the marriage bed should be honored. And like you mentioned, uh, monogamous uh, marriage between a man and a woman is just not esteemed in our culture anymore. And Mm. Children are suffering because of it. Our culture really is not all that interesting. It's it's just sex-saturated. There doesn't seem to be much more than the animal instinct. And, right. yeah, it's just not very pleasing. Okay. We reap what we sow. Indeed, there are a set of sexual and moral standards in Scripture, and we are rejecting them. But our nation is rejecting these standards more adamantly and more defiantly in some places than others. Some of the most alarming developments we see are coming out of my home state of California. I turn to attorney and activist Jennifer Kennedy to talk about two key pieces of legislation here in the Golden State. When we have a conversation and people are talking about, if you do not agree with the government's ideology, the local state government, Sacramento, their ideology about kids and how you should take care of your kids, then they are making laws right now that would give the government the authority to take your kids away. Is that true? That sounds crazy, but that's correct. It's not crazy. That's exactly what's happening. And in fact, AB 957 is the bill put forth by Assemblywoman Lori Wilson. And in fact, it's not even just the state's opinion of what we should do. It's Lori Wilson's opinion of how we should parent our children. She is the parent of a trans child. For her, affirmation of this child gender transition worked for her family. Well, her law is going to make every family in the state of California follow her model, which is forced affirmation of child gender transition or lose your child, lose custody. I actually have her words on that right here. If you have a seven-year-old who's who's talking about having a potential to say, I being able to articulate that they believe that they are not the same gender um, as they are biologically, then it should be affirmed and through care. It should be determined. And that's what we did with our own child. She's talking about a seven-year-old. 
and that if your seven-year-old says, in this case, I want to change my gender or I want to use these pronouns or I want to do all this, but it could be applied to anything. A seven-year-old might say, you have to listen or else you're a bad parent. That's right. And in fact, that quote we just heard, that was from her the hearing in the Assembly Judiciary before it passed off the Assembly floor. The bill has now been amended and it's even worse. She was talking about the judges using affirmation as just a factor mm. in what they consider. Now they've elevated affirmation to the same status as health, safety, and welfare of the child, that that is an equal part of the health, safety, and welfare. And those are three buzzwords that we use in other codes that talk about, is a child safe or not? Should a parent be charged with abuse because their child is unsafe? And even without a law like this, we've seen this happen. This is AB 957, if people are taking notes, AB 957. This bill in particular has to do more with divorce proceedings and how the judge would side against parents who are fighting over custody. Is that correct? That's correct. In fact, it's an instruction to the judge on how he is supposed to rule and favor that affirming parent. So if if one parent says, I want to transition my kid, and the other parent says, I don't, the judge is now being, if this law passes... The judge will have no choice but to side with the parent who wants to transition the kid. That's exactly correct. The judge's hands will be tied and judicial discretion will be invaded, right? Right. Judges are supposed to have the discretion to look at the unique facts of the unique family in front of them and put all factors together and make a decision. This tells the judge you must favor the affirming parent and the other parent is always going to lose. That's where we are in California. So the other bill I mentioned is AB 665. And this goes beyond a, excuse me, a divorce custody battle, doesn't it? Yes, this is going to affect all parents and all kids. It'll have the possibility of affecting really every family in the state of California. This one is extremely complex. It has lots of moving parts, intentionally confusing to the lay people. But I have spent hundreds of hours breaking it down. And this is what it does. It does two things. Number one, we call it state-sanctioned kidnapping for a reason. It's going to allow a random third-party adult to take your child and check your child into a residential shelter. What this bill does, it is expanding minor consent to mental health care. That's what it thinks it's doing. And specifically, it's saying that it's expanding um, consent, minor consent for mental health care with, and this means without parental notice or consent, to low-income kids, kids who have only Medi-Cal. Okay, that's the weeds of this because it has to do with something to do with Medi-Cal and insurance funding. But that is a smokescreen. And the language of the bill as it is, the bill is not meant to be a standalone law. It's actually going into existing law and amending an existing old statute from 1979. And that statute says that minors cannot consent to counseling or to residential shelter going into a group home unless there's danger posed to that child. Like physical danger. Two kinds. Uh, yeah. Suicidal ide- ideation. Mm-hmm. They're suicidal or they're, uh, you know, they're, they're going to cause harm to themselves or to others, or they face danger at home, like abuse or incest. And in that specific situation, we call those the danger guardrails of that family code. With those danger guardrails, you're, they're going to let a minor consent to either counseling or going into a residential shelter. This bill seeks to basically emancipate all 12-year-olds in the state of California to remove themselves from their home and check themselves into a residential facility or to work with, again, some random adult who is considered a professional person, such as a counselor or a social worker or 
according to this bill, could be the lady at the front desk of the residential shelter to collude with that person to leave the custody of their parents and go into a residential shelter. And when you say that part about the professional person consulting with the minor about mm-hmm. whether it's appropriate to let the parents in, right? that already exists in, in state right. law. That already exists. Here's what they think they're aligning. There's a newer code, health and safety code, and that's the one I call just because counseling. And that allows minors 12 and older just because, not because of danger, just because they want some counseling. It allows them to consent to counseling without parental notice. The end. Yeah. And that's just because that they say they're going to align that statute of just because no danger counseling with the older law that has those danger guardrails. Right. But here's the trick of what they're doing. They're going into that older law and they're stripping out those guardrails. They are erasing 45 years of protections for parents to not have their child taken from them for literally no good reason. That's what's happening. And they will not acknowledge that that's what they're doing. Coming up. You set an example for the nation and quite frankly for the world. Pride Week and the ideology behind it in the next segment of The Christian Outlook. As the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy celebrates our 25th anniversary year, please watch our new promotional video based on Ronald Reagan's 1976 radio address, Shaping the World for 100 Years to Come, on our Pepperdine SPP YouTube channel. And if you know someone who's thinking about graduate school this fall, we welcome applications at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. That's publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. Welcome back to The Christian Outlook. I'm Scott Furrow, host of The Pastor Scott Show. I'd be surprised if you've missed it, but June is Pride Month. And so we've been met with celebration after celebration of all things LGBTQ, including an event on the front lawn of the White House. We all talk about courage. Well, I see more courage in this lawn than I've seen in any time in the recent past. But the thing about y'all is... You not only are about courage, you generate so much hope for people, hope and light. You enrich every part of American life, educators, entertainers, entrepreneurs, athletes, actors, artists, scientists, scholars, diplomats, doctors, service members, veterans, and so much more. As I said, I mean this, I swear to God. You're some of the most, you're some of the bravest and most inspiring people I've ever known. And I've known a lot of good folks. You set an example for the nation and quite frankly, for the world. You know, we all move forward when we move together with your joy, with your pride lighting the way. So today, let us proudly remember who we are, the United States of America. And there is nothing, nothing beyond America's capacity when we decide to do it together as you're doing today. We shall get better every single year. Happy Pride. Enjoy the celebration. I'll spare you the details, but the White House was forced to issue an apology for the wildly inappropriate behavior on the lawn of the People's House. 
Prolific author and apologist Larry Taunton explains for us the roots behind this fast-moving sexual and gender revolution. He was a guest of Eric Metaxas. Part of what's happening in the culture generally uh, is, as I see it, a war on God. Um, these are satanic things, ultimately. They're a war on God and on reality. God invented reality. Uh, he, is God, he is nature's God. So he created us in his image, male and female. And there's something glorious about that. It is a picture of God. And when you reject God, you reject everything that he has done, and you reject genuine masculinity, genuine femininity. That's part of what is uh, at play here, and that's, of course, what brings us into the, the trans movement. It's a war on reality and on nature. Yeah, I, uh, I agree with that totally. You know, Satan is not a... Um, he's not an original thinker. He's What he does is pervert the things of God. So he twists them, you know, the, the, the pentagram, you know, just taking the star of David or similar and, you know, just, just warping it slightly. The, the, uh, the, the, the gender, um, uh, confusion, you know, uh, what we're seeing in all of this is, is satanic. It's all satanic and it is an effort to undermine and destroy society at its basis. You know, Karl Marx said this in the, uh, I have it sitting sitting right here. Karl, Karl Marx said this in the Communist Manifesto. He said, destroy the family. Destroy the family. That's that's a, a direct quotation. And it is because Marx understood the way many in the West, better than many in the West do understand, that the family and the Christian faith of families has been the bedrock of Western civilization, particularly of the United States. And so when a guy like that was thinking, how do we penetrate those societies and destroy them? Subsequent followers, a guy by the name of Georg Lukács, Georg Lukács was a, um, a Bolshevik. He was a Hungarian Bolshevik who in the early 20th century, he said, you know, he, he became part of something called the Frankfurt School. And the Frankfurt School in 1933 fled Germany and they ended up in New York and had, a, had an enormous influence at Columbia University and, you know, around the United States. But Georg Lukács, he said this, we will never bring down the United States. We will never create the Marxist revolution we want the way we've done it elsewhere. That is to say, with guns. The way we have to do it is by destroying the family. It is by destroying Christian morality, destroying the church. And he said the way to do it, the breach in the wall, the way to get into the culture and to achieve it, he said, is through sex education. And he said, because under the guise of sex education, we will essentially present it to parents and others as, you know, these courses are important to avoid disease and uh, to, 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 to show how children are born and to, to teach sexual ethics, morality, avoid teen pregnancy, all things that parents would say, yeah, great, do it. Uh, again, another place where parents gave ground and granted the state the right and responsibility for doing something that parents themselves would be doing. But Lukash's goal was we don't want, really want to do any of that. What we want to do is to, is to sever the relationship between, between morality and sex, between parents and children, 
and to thus undermine society as a whole. That's what we want to do. So when when people are looking and going, well, it makes no sense to have drag queen story hour. It makes no sense to have, uh, you know, be handing out condoms to, um, you know, to adolescents. It makes no sense. Well, it does make sense from Lukash's point of view, from a cultural Marxist point of view, because the idea is to basically basically take the wrench of sexual confusion and throw it into the smooth-running American machine and thus destroy it all. That's the objective. And it's extraordinary how far they've gotten. I mean, in our lifetimes, we've, we've seen this. I mean, this was, you know, the, the 60s was just one iteration of this. Of course, it started long before that. You're talking about the Frankfurt School. Uh, you know, you can go back and back and back, but it hasn't really um, found purchase seriously until recently. Uh, and we see people questioning the most basic things, things that even 10 years ago, uh, people would have said, well, no, what, that, that, we're not going to question that. Somehow maneuvered into a place where they're questioning the very basics of all of reality, which is that we're made in God's image, male and female. Everybody has always known this. Uh, everyone will always know this, except right now we're going to pretend it's not true. It's, it's extraordinary. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's, it's interesting. I came across, I was... I was reading a, um, an article from 2016 in the American Journal of Pediatricians and Surgeons. They were already, you know, addressing this issue, you know, at, at, at that time. And the author of this particular article, and I wish I could remember her name, and uh, regrettably, I cannot, but she says this. She says, the idea that, that um, someone of one sex is trapped in the body of another sex has no basis in science, zero, and that there are only two sex. And then she says, which I thought was, was really pithy, she said, sex is not assigned at birth. It occurs in utero instantaneously. And uh, is irreversible. Well, no, this and, is, uh, there, there's no doubt about it, folks. You could take a blood test and you, you're either this or you're this. It's very simple. Coming up. What we are seeing with the LGBTQ agenda, what we are seeing from the left is to desecrate all holy things. It's why they chose the rainbow. We're going to continue with Larry Taunton when the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. It's Mike Gallagher. I start every day by reading through the stories at Daybreak Insider. In just 10 minutes, I can zip through 10 stories that help me start my day and help shape where I go with The Mike Gallagher Show. Over a quarter million people get Daybreak Insider by email daily, and it's available to you at no cost. Go to daybreakinsider.com and simply plug in your email. That's daybreakinsider.com. In five minutes, you will be the most informed person in the office. That's daybreakinsider.com. Welcome back to The Christian Outlook, brought to you in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. I'm Scott Furrow. The degree to which our culture has accepted so many of these new supposed truth claims of the sexual and gender revolution is really astounding. But there are ideologues within the movement who know exactly what they are doing and where they are intent on going. 
I guess the disappointment is how many people are following them. Let's return for more of the conversation with Larry Taunton and Eric Metaxas. These ideas, when people just swallow lies, I mean, the idea suddenly that, oh, I'm a a man trapped in a woman's body or a woman trapped in a man's body, you know, you want to say, excuse me, what? What are you talking about? Where'd you get the idea that that was a thing? And suddenly everybody's talking like that's a thing, like everybody knows it's a thing. And no one has ever known this was a thing, especially in the scientific West where we go by what we can see. I mean, if you're pro-science on any level, where did this idea come from? And it seems to have just in a moment taken over the culture. And now even to talk about it is offensive to people. Well, again, it's, it's, it's cultural Marxism. It's the, it's the work of a guy by the name of Antonio Gramsci. He was an Italian Marxist who was imprisoned by Mussolini in the 1930s, which puts him in good standing you know, with some people. And he wrote all these secret notebooks that became kind of iconic, um, holy writ to Marxists in the West. And it was his writings and Georg uh, Lukács' writings that gave rise to intersectionality, critical theory, critical race theory, Black Lives Matter, Antifa, all that kind of stuff. We can also say that some of this is, you know, is a result of the writings of a guy like Saul Alinsky. But the idea here is when we see, for instance, we saw just a few days ago at the White House, the Biden White House, we saw Gay Pride Day, where the this this gay flag is hanging off of the White House. Now, I thank God my, my father, who fought two wars on behalf of this country, did not live to see that. I can only imagine his reaction to that. But no one fought for that. No one no one fought to just someone shed blood in order order to make that happen. But what's going on with that? And then we see the video of Joe Biden and Jill Biden presiding over it all. It wasn't like they were in Europe and said, oh, the kids threw a keg party. We didn't know what was going on at home. And we see this topless, you know, transsexual, you know, running around the White House. Rumors are that there was quite a lot going on sexually in other parts of the White House. Lincoln bedroom, who knows, the Oval Office, who knows what these perverts were doing. But the question becomes, why are they doing it? Because... It is an in-your-face gesture to desecrate the holy things of America. And while we don't believe, we don't think of the White House as holy in the biblical sense, but it is is holy in the sense that it is a a big part of America's history. It's founding. It's sacred in that sense and thus is treated with respect. It's America's house. But what I'm reminded of, Eric, is I'm I'm reminded of Daniel chapter 5. And um, it's, it's an interesting passage that I would encourage anyone to go and, and read because it, it really applies now. It is the story of Belshazzar and uh, Belshazzar, who is referred to, you know, as a son of Nebuchadnezzar and um, a man who knew God's blessing of Nebuchadnezzar and his punishment of Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar, of course, had conquered Jerusalem and had taken the holy vessels of gold and silver out of the temple, out of the Lord's temple, and put it into their treasury. Well, here you have in Daniel 5, Belshazzar throwing this, you know, this wild party of his own, and you and it says with his concubines and his wives and trying to impress everybody, and he says, hey, okay, this pagan ritual, he says, hey, go get the holy things that we took out of the, the, the temple of Jerusalem. Go and bring those vessels here that we might drink from them. In other words, it was what you saw at the White House. It was a deliberate attempt 
to desecrate what is holy, to say in your face, not just to the people of Israel, but to the God of Israel. And that's when, of course, the hand appeared writing on the wall. And Belshazzar was killed that very night. What we are seeing with the LGBTQ agenda, what we are seeing from the left is to desecrate all holy things. It's why they chose the rainbow. They chose the rainbow to pervert it, to say, in your face, take this. It's why we're seeing pastors and priests, some of them who are effectively wearing the Nazi armband, who are wearing like rainbow vestments and things of this nature. It is hanging gay flags off of churches. It is exactly the same thing that you see in Daniel 5. Bring the holy things here that we might desecrate them. That's what's happening in the culture. And why, for the purpose of annihilating existing social, political, and moral paradigms in order to replace them with something else. Coming up... We don't have to allow the cynicism, the naysaying of our age to define our families, to define our homes, to define the communities to which we belong. Carl Truman, when the Christian Outlook continues in just a moment, stay with us. As the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy celebrates our 25th anniversary year, please watch our new promotional video based on Ronald Reagan's 1976 radio address, Shaping the World for 100 Years to Come, on our Pepperdine SPP YouTube channel. And if you know someone who's thinking about graduate school this fall, we welcome applications at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. That's publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. Welcome back to The Christian Outlook. I'm Scott Furrow. The last verse of Amazing Grace says this, When we've been here 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. The time we have spent worshiping God with others here could prepare us for endless time worshiping God together in a heavenly home. My prayer is that as we move on from this campus home, God will be preparing us for a heavenly home. Those were the words from Meredith Johnson speaking to her fellow graduates a few weeks ago at Grove City College in Western Pennsylvania. They were quoted by Carl Truman, a theologian and teacher at Grove City, in his recent piece at First Things magazine, Hope in an Age of Naysaying. Truman was a guest of John Hall and Kathy Emmons, my colleagues on Word 101.5 FM in Pittsburgh. That is the spirit of the age, right? We can find something negative to say about anything. Yes, I think so. Whether it's cynicism or pessimism or what, I'm not quite sure. It could be a different thing with different people. But the desire to tear down seems to me very, very strong at this particular point in time. So your your piece at First Things, Carl, Hope in an Age of Naysaying, I'm glad to feel, and and you as well, that Kath and I think that, that hope is a good thing and it is thriving even in this weird age we live in. Yeah, I think so. If you were to ask me honestly to assess the state of society at the moment, I'd have to say that the bigger picture is quite bleak. But we're all aware of pockets of resistance or pockets of hope in in our communities and in in our own circles. I've been asked recently, you know, where do you see hope? And one of my answers has been, well, you know, we don't have to allow the cynicism, the naysaying of our age 
to define our families, to define our homes, to define the communities to which we belong. And, and I think it's important to remember that, lest we, lest we despair or just become very dry and, and bitter and cynical. I think that depends on who we surround ourselves with or what communities we insert ourselves in. But if you, if you do commit yourself to being part of negative communities, I don't see that there's any way you're going to come out the other side not being like them. No, not at all. I mean, I think that's why Paul uh, says, you know, bad company corrupts morals. Yes, yeah. And we generally tend to think of that in terms of, I guess, young men hanging around in bad company and, you know, smashing windows or doing something worse. But I think what Paul is saying there has a much more broader application, and that is that the way you think about the world and the way you think about the other, other people is profoundly shaped by the kind of converse you have with the people that you surround yourself with. And this is why church is so important. I mean, a church should be a hopeful community and being involved in a church is something that should shape our attitude and our mindset you mentioned my first things piece a few months ago and there was the, the sort of the basis of that article was the speech being given by a student at the grove city uh, commencement recently and she was making the point that heaven is our home we have homes between here and there and we judge the value of our homes here by how they help us move to the next home and finally to heaven itself and we should be striving to make our temporary homes here a little piece of heaven on earth one might say yes but you know of course we're all products of the generation of which we are part of you know so here we just went through uh, d-day the 79th anniversary of the storming of the beach at normandy and the so-called greatest generation they were called to something that your generation carl my generation and this new generation, the so-called snowflake generation, just does not have the wherewithal, you know, to even consider something like, you know, our parents or grandparents did. We are products of what we derive from, yeah? Yeah, I think so. And I mean, on one level, I think that's a cause for gratitude. Uh, you know, I'm yes. rather glad that when I got married, I didn't have to leave my wife behind and go and serve in a combat zone for six years. Yeah. So I think there is there's great cause for gratitude for the relative comfort that we have uh, mm -hmm. grown up with. But I also think that you know wartime impresses on people the importance of other people. It impresses upon people the need for friendship, the need for connection. And I think we need to strive in our own day and generation to to recapture something that praise God that it isn't war that's you know, making us see that. But I do think we need to try to capture something of what you know, the, the Second World War epitomized, which was uh, camaraderie, dependency, obligation towards others. These are things that make us human. Uh, the world is not all about me and my immediate satisfaction. It's about me being part of a broader community and fulfilling my role in that, and being grateful for the opportunity to fulfill my role in that. Yes. So, Carl, in some ways, this weird age we're living in, someone made the comment, well, maybe, you know, we're all worried about our correct pronouns, or some people are, I should say, because people are just bored, because there is no definite, infinite challenge mm. that we're called to nowadays. Certainly that could be the case. I think that one might say that the triviality of suffering in our age has led to a massive inflation in what constitutes suffering or what constitutes victimhood. We could certainly make uh, a case for that. But again, I think that is the result in some ways of, of the eclipse of being grateful for the things that we do have. Carl, as we're talking about hope versus cynicism or hope versus despair or negativism, but I want to kind of turn it back to what you wrote about in your First Things article. Talk about being a teacher. Talk about what it is to be a professor on a college campus, because if you open, you know, if you would Google, you know, 
what are college students like today? You'd probably end up with a thousand negative articles before you got to anything positive. What's your experience been? Yeah, well, of course, you know, bad news, you know, good news doesn't make good headlines. Uh, you're journalists, you know that. You know, reporting that students are great and a delight to work with, that's not going to sell you any newspapers or get you any internet clicks by and large. But my own experience of students, particularly at Grove City College, is by and large a very, very positive one. I do think that a lot of students come to college because they want to learn. Uh, maybe Grove's demographic profile is, is a little different to other colleges, but my impression of a lot of my students is they've been taught by their parents that getting an education is a way to getting on in life. Treating people with respect is a way of getting on in life. Uh, and I've had a very, very positive experience of the students I've, I've taught at Grove. And, and I would also say in general that, that teaching, you know, what greater privilege is there beyond actually being a minister of the gospel and preaching the gospel, what greater privilege is there than shaping the minds of young people with good stuff? I think that's a tremendous privilege. So, you know, the, the joys of being a professor are not just the long summers when you can get down to do the work you're really interested in, but actually engaging with these young minds on a daily basis and realizing that the, the press uh, presentation of young people. It's not the whole story. Uh, there are some great young people out there who want to make a difference, yes. uh, who want to uh, connect with the good, the true, and the beautiful, to use the sort of the cliché triplet that we use in liberal arts education, and who want to see society improved in good and right and proper ways. And I think it's a great privilege to have an opportunity to be a small part in that process when these young people are at such an important stage in their development. Coming up... We're called to be shining lights of hope within the world. We continue with Carl Truman when the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. Tuning into the baseball game, monitoring the incoming storm, catching your favorite talk show. These are just a few of the reasons more than 80 million Americans depend on AM radio each month. And did you know AM radio is the backbone of the emergency alert system, keeping us safe in dangerous times? It's reliable, free, and public safety depends on it. Text AM to 52886 and tell Congress we need AM radio in cars. This message furnished by the National Association of Broadcasters. Welcome back to the Christian Outlook. I'm Scott Furrow. As we look at the country and culture around us today, we certainly have grounds for cynicism and negativity. But for the Christian, the behavior of the unbelieving world around us has never been our grounds for hope. Our hope is grounded in truths that are eternal. It is a hope that no man and no government can quench. Here, once again, is Carl Truman with John Hall and Kathy Emmons. So glass half full, glass half empty. I mean, you see the goodness you're surrounded by. At the same time, society itself seems to be a cesspool. That, that's certainly true. And I'm not sure that it's ever been that different. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I, I cut my teeth in academics as a 16th, 17th century uh, academic. Um, the world was pretty violent and unpleasant mm -hmm. in those days. Mm -hmm. We didn't have the technology that enabled us, A, to know about it all, and B, to inflict such great levels of destruction on the world around. So we have more capability for evil now. But I think the world has always been a more or less bad, fallen place. And it's always had pockets of resistance, pockets of light. 
And I think this, you know, we've already commented in this uh, in this program that we have not had to suffer in the way that previous generation did, and that's a good thing. I'm glad that I grew up without my earliest memories being those that my father had, and that is of running right. to the bomb shelter at the bottom of his garden. Um, we are called to live on the world as it is, in the world as it is, not to lament that it isn't like it was 200 years ago or to wish we were somewhere in the future. We're called to live now. Mm-hmm. We're called to be grateful for the world as it is now, and we're called to be shining lights of hope within the world as it is now. I want to ask you about uh, a conversation we had on the air a couple of days ago, Carl. Um, and I've been thinking a lot about the kind of person that I've become because of technology. And so I wonder if you could just tell us about college students that you know. Um, how has technology affected them? How does technology affect you? I think one of, you know, there are many, many things one could say about that. I do think that all the evidence suggests, and I see that in, my, in some of my college students, that, that social media has created far more anxiety. Yeah. Uh, among young people. It's not something I can really sympathize with because I don't, I don't care about social media. People will occasionally say to me, do you see what that guy said about you on Twitter? And my response is always, it's a weird way to try to get at the guy who doesn't go on Twitter by going <laughs> in on Twitter. Right. I really don't care what people say about me on Twitter uh, one way or the other, but young college students do. And I think if, if I had one thing that would concern me about technology among college students, it's not artificial intelligence and chat GPT so much. It's the effect it has on on their feelings of, of insecurity. And, and I encourage college students to at least be aware of how social media is shaping the way they think about themselves and about the way they are accepted. Uh, and to think, therefore, about perhaps weaning themselves off it to some extent. Make it their servant rather than making themselves the slaves of it, if I could put it that way. That concludes our program today. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, make sure to mention it to a friend. You can find this special episode at ChristianOutlook.com. While you're there, take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Our program has been brought to you in part through our partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. For executive producer Russell Shubin and producers David Pushan and J.J. Corona, I'm Scott Furrow. Join us again next time for the Christian Outlook. Hey, are you having issues with your battery-operated power tools or outdoor power equipment? AJ's Repair and Services is an authorized service warranty center for all your rigid, Ryobi, and heart projects. AJ's Repair and Services will get your equipment rejuvenated and you on the go. AJ's Repair and Services is a one-stop shop for all your power tools and outdoor power equipment needs. 302 East Robertson Avenue in Coppers Cove, where you are treated like family. 254-542-8000 or online at ajsrepairandservice.com.